0: Hey, money grows on trees family it is producer Phil here I am hoping you enjoyed that last episode of Lloyd talking to his father learning more about his dad if you don't know uh, make sure you go check out last week's episode but just give you a recap we learned about uh, Lloyd's dad his history about how at age eight his dad passed away in a tragic road accident and how he went on to do over a hundred sales of insurance in one week it was incredible uh, learning that story so that's everything we learned how he got into insurance and his background we're going to learn so much more about him going forward so guys i hope you've enjoyed make sure you go over and like lloyd's uh instagram lloyd j ross now without further ado let's hear that beautiful intro music welcome Well, there you go. So now we're starting to get to the pointy end of the business here. Like, so, when, it, how, how, how many insurance policies would agents in those days sign up per week?
1: Uh, in those days, the
0: industry average was 0.8. So not even one a week. So Dad, so Dad and Joe are out there at this power station, about to, um, you know, so basically having securing a hundred clients through a turnaround perseverance strategy, where you go back and talk to the union boss. You're sitting there, and you sat there for thirty-six hours, yeah. and signed so, and signed up a hundred clients yeah. in in that time frame. So everyone, just so everyone knows, that would take a normal agent two years to do, which shows you the power of perseverance, the power of thought, the power of how do I talk to more people at once, and something would have been driving you then, no doubt, to be you know probably the number one agent in the, in the country, or you know, th- and, and also obviously the the tremendous success financially you get from doing a lot of business. So, I, you became the number one insurance salesman for TNG. Well, they eventually got taken over by National Mutual. Okay. And uh, National
1: Mutual, the number two life office in Australia, AMP was the number one. And in the 80s, when the markets were deregulated and the Australian dollar was floated, National Mutual and AMP went into a head-to-head competition to be number one. And uh, National Mutual, they, were, they had an appetite to be number one and, and overtake the AMP which I never quite did, Um, but in those days, A&P had a large agency force of some four-odd thousand people and National Mutual had a similar agency force of some four-odd thousand. And um, we, we, you know, were driven, I suppose, by our management team um, in a lot of respects and they put on competitions and um, international uh, conferences and things like that to, you know, really gear up their sales team or their sales network across Australia and that you know drove
0: a lot of competition within the company itself but also with the other companies. So when TNG got taken over ain't you were a top state sales, salesman at that point yeah. and uh, so so National Mutual takes them over and how old are you at this point when you when you started to get your find your feet with insurance and become That's a great bad. agent? 26. 26 so dad's 26 and I'd been born, I think, then when he was 24. So I was probably two. Um, my sister was born. My parents got married in Tamworth. Um, and so Dad's now 26, doing good numbers in his business in insurance, and takes up the company gets taken over by National Mutual. And Dad, you become the number one insurance life insurance salesman in Australia. Is that right? For National Mutual. For National Mutual. Yeah, yeah. And Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia. Yeah. <clears throat> 26 so <laughs> at that point wh- when did you feel like you were a success financially
1: well I, I, well I built um, you know Susan and I built a million dollar home in those days in Tamworth and that was you know quite excessive and um, we were driving nice motor cars and um, we were living a quite a nice lifestyle and you know, but there was naturally uh, those successes are not achieved without a lot of um, a lot of real
0: serious hard work. Yeah. So you're on the road a lot, you get in the car in the morning, you get up at three, go to and drive to Sydney three and a half, four, five, four hours. Five, six hours. Five, six hours, and then you go and sell all day in Sydney or for the week. Yeah. And you drive home. Yeah. Is that
1: the type yeah, of yeah, yeah. So travelling salesman? Yeah, it was travelling salesman. So yeah,
0: when you're yeah. talking about sacrifice, you got two young kids at home at that stage, wife um and you're traveling a lot on the road yeah you know? no mobile phones really no. in those days no and so you're doing a lot of legwork so you get up early working all day s- signing signing clients up yeah telling them and coming back
1: i used to do um probably a good solid 10, 10, 10 to 12 hours a day selling because i would not only you know, go and work with the people that were working during the day but i'd go and see the shift workers of a night so it was nothing unusual for me to start at 7 o'clock in the morning and finish at 1 o'clock in the next morning. And then I'd go back to my hotel and I'd complete my paperwork and get all that put to bed and then I'd have a couple of hours sleep and then I'd get up
0: and get going again and, you know, continue to do that. So would you say, so I think to, you know, so how old were you when you made your first million dollar, when you became a millionaire? How? Old? 27. 27, so 27, self-made millionaire um, and... You know, had two great mentors, like you said, in Vic Hatfield and Vernon Lewis. Um, Can you think of, we've got a couple of other things I want to talk about with this because this is really, this is powerful. At, At that age, to have that wealth and you're obviously then upgrading your lifestyle and so on, is there any particular lessons that Vic Hatfield or Vernon Lewis, your mentors, taught you? Some story you can think about, what you saw them do, how you modeled them. What did they do to actually propel you and help you become the number one agent and become a millionaire at that age?
1: They were men of substance, and they had um, tremendous integrity, and they were good family um, men, both of them, and they they really instilled in me a lot of good values, and that I still carry today. And um, uh, things like as basic as it sounds, like I polish my boots every pretty much every afternoon, ready for the next day, and you know when I meet people, I glance down at their boots because. Vernon Anvik really, you know, said to me, you start, you really measure the, man. and I was young when they said this to me, and they said, you measure the man from the beard up. And I've always had that uh, habit in me when I meet somebody for the first time and shake hands with them, I glance down at their boots and, and I work out, you know, what I'm dealing with from that moment as to whether the person's got substance in them because there's nothing worse than seeing somebody wearing a pair of scuffed boots that, you know, they've never seen polish or, because it means that the rest of their life is probably not going to be so flash as well.
0: There you go. Good lesson. You measure a man from his boots up. Uh, so, at this stage, you have you have a great, great national national mutual insurance business, uh, writing lots of clients. Um, tell us, tell us the story of how you ended up writing a hundred insurance policies by yourself, solo, in one week. Um, I was
1: invited to a conference in Melbourne by National Mutual senior management to address three hundred. National Mutual Insurance Agents, and and it was called uh, an afternoon with Lloyd Ross, and I was on the stage, or platform, speaking for two and a half hours, and there was a chap at the at the end um, who was sitting right at the back of the room, and in the question session he said, Lloyd, I've I've heard you speak before, and you two years ago, and you mentioned that you thought it was possible to write 100 in a hundred policy in a week, and I said, yes, I remember. He said, well, two years on, you still haven't done it. And uh, at that stage, I, you know, there was a murmur through the whole, whole room with 300 people, you can imagine. And uh, I thought, gee, that guy, that guy really did um, really chew me out. So I walked off that stage that day, determined that I was going to finally go and do what I said, with what I thought was possible. So I prepared myself two weeks later and um, i drove to sydney on a sunday i stayed at my sister's home and um who was living in sydney at at that stage her and her husband and um, i started working at six o'clock on monday morning and i would work through until about two o'clock the next morning doing both day workers and shift workers and i worked on the basis that i needed to write about 20 policies per day and um, the first day I got a little bit in front, and I was—I be- think I wrote 26. The second day I was sort of par, wrote 20. The third day I only wrote 18. The fourth day um, I had a pretty good day, and I wrote some 25 or 26. And on the Friday I was a little—I was a shy of the hundred. And I walked into a railway depot, and Stevie Wright, who was the lead singer of the Easy Beats. He, had, uh, he was there as a timekeeper because his uh, singing career, his band career was a bit off track at that stage, naturally, and um, so that's why he was a timekeeper. And uh, I signed him up as a client, and then I said to Stevie Wright, Stevie, you know, do you know of anybody else that I can speak with? He said, Lloyd, there's two big truckloads coming in in the next half an hour. If you'd like to wait around for them, uh, I'll introduce you, and um, so on. He said, but be aware that they're probably ready to go home. It's Friday afternoon. It's going to be three o'clock. So he waited with me until the trucks arrived. And then he attempted to uh, get the uh, foreman of those trucks, uh, gangs, to listen to me for half an hour. Naturally, some went and some stayed. And, but I, I end up writing
0: for that week 108 policies. So just so everyone knows, writing 108 policies means Dad sold individually 108 insurance uh, product sales in one week. So remember, the average is one a week, and he just did 100 solo after that fellow challenged him at a conference, right? So there's a few lessons in this one. I think from what I see is, one, that fellow held you accountable to your word, and then you were a person to your word, so you're like, you know what, you're right, I'm going to show you. So it's this... You got challenged and you rose to the challenge the second thing i saw in that was you broke it down into goals so you're going to write 100 a week you needed to write about 20 or so a day right and then when you're talking to stevie from the easy beats i think what helped you is you asked for referrals you said who do you know who i can talk to and i think what a great business lesson for everyone is how do you find people to talk to and sell and find clients you ask people to connect you to people like what a great what a great it does Dad just does it so naturally; he doesn't even probably realise what he's doing. But it—that's that, how he—that's how he found more to talk to. So, were you a bit—were you a bit tired after? Right after? How many, did you just sleep much that week? What was the, What was the feeling like when you actually did it and you achieved it? Well, I was—I was pretty um, chuffed the fact that I had written 108 policies, and
1: it was late in the afternoon on a Friday, and I—and I had to, you know, drive back to Tamworth, which is going to be another five or six-hour drive. In, the, in that heavy afternoon Sydney traffic. But I was pretty um, excited about that achievement you know, at that stage. So I drove back in the late hours of the night to Tunworth and uh, had a good sleep over the weekend. I said to Susan at the time, I'm going to go to sleep and I'll probably go into such a deep sleep I might even pass away. <laughs> <laughs> but what I did uh, also decide to do, I rang the uh, on the Monday. I rang the person who challenged me at that uh, particular event or conference, and thanked him for um, you know asking the question or putting the question on the table, after, you know, because it did make me go and do it. And in that week, I, I think I made about hundred and forty thousand dollars. And you know, I guess hundred and forty thousand dollars in 1986 was in a week. In a week was a pretty good. Um,
0: Level of income. It keeps you off the streets. Keeps you. Yeah. Hundred and forty thousand in the eighties. Was it in the eighties. Yeah. Late eighties. Yeah. Eighty six. So hundred and forty thousand in a week. Uh, that's incredible. So, <laughs> I think at that you must have thought, "Fire out! I'm good at this." <laughs> like you must have thought, like you were a number one agent for, for, uh, for ten years in a row. Yeah. Is that I, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, at that point, what? Did you feel like you had hit the pinnacle in terms of being an insurance agent? That sort of—I um, was always
1: more about not really. It wasn't the fact that being number one was important to me. It was about enjoying the business that I was in, yeah. helping the people that I was helping, yeah. earning the income that I was earning, yeah. and providing a good, secure lifestyle for my family yeah. and the people around me. Okay. And um, yeah. two weeks later I went back and did it again with a friend of mine who worked in the business and we wrote 100 and you and Joe yeah Jeff Brown and I we we did 103 I think yeah just to prove that you know it could be done again yeah and from there it sort of lifted the whole of the National Mutual Agency force to prove that the industry average of 0.8 per week was just not good enough Mm. and um, from there you know National Mutual Senior Management um, they would involved me in training and I'd take their agency force to the sales market to teach them how to do group selling and it
0: lifted the whole of the company and it lifted the whole of the, those individuals accordingly. So you would start doing training and uh, I think at one point too, you you, like you, got, you guys would go to the railroads, you'd go to the police stations, you're out in the field, you're doing trainings, conferences. Um, and then there was one fellow, a mutual friend, and he's uh, he's become a great success himself. But he was probably only young then. And I think did he pay you? Did he pay you? Was it twenty thousand dollars to follow you around for a, a few days? Ah, oh, yeah,
1: Mark Rondell. Mark.
0: Yeah. Mark is a really
1: successful mortgage broker these days, but he was also a very successful insurance agent. And when he was a young guy, well, when I want to say young guy, he was only three or four years younger than me at the time. He wrote a cheque for 20000 and he cut it in half and he put it in the post with a, a note and said, I'd like to uh, come and spend three days with you and learn from you and if you do that, I will bring the other half of the cheque and and um, put it back together. So, um, so I agreed to do that and he came to my office in Tamworth and I took him out into the field for three days and showed him, how to do it and the presentations and what to say and, and the whole process of group selling. And um, whilst I had him there doing that, I also, um, whilst I was making the sales, I was still putting his name on the proposals so that not only would he be learning, but he was also making money in that week because he'd made an investment and I could tell that he'd made an investment in himself. Mm. So I always gave him points for doing that. Because he, he paid the 20,000, but over the course of that week, not only did he learn, but he also made back at least half of the amount that he'd invested. Isn't that amazing? Like, and then he went on to continue to write substantial amounts
0: of business with National Mutual over a number of years. And he went on to make, he, he's gone on to make, uh, yeah he, he's a multi-millionaire, Mark, yeah, he, he, yeah, and, and yeah. he's done lots of interesting things, and uh, he's got a successful online business, and um I'll get him on the podcast actually he'll yeah, tell he'll, he'll be able to tell some funny stories <laughs> so so what I love about that is he invested 20,000 to model a mentor in you and I just I, I preach about this all the time on the podcast I don't know if people believe me but it's mentorship that accelerates the success and that's what he bought it he bought proximity to you because you were the best in the business as far as he could see he wanted to emulate that success so he modeled you and he paid for proximity to you yeah what yeah. a great like, how smart. Yeah, he was. Yeah. And he was only 23 then. Yeah, he's only 23. Yeah. And then you've been a great mentor. You also helped him earn, learn, probably pour belief into him. And he's gone and you've influenced him. So that's good, it's a good story. One, that one. Of, one of the greatest things from group selling
1: is the art of cold canvassing. And um, it really is an art. And it's something that everybody can do. What's cold canvassing for everyone who doesn't know what cold canvassing is? Cold canvassing is when you just... Um, walk up to somebody introduce yourself tell them who you are and what you're um what you do for a living and what you'd like to talk to them about and they're a perfect stranger and um you know people are people at the end of the day you know you're a stranger until you shake hands mm. and then but so cold calling and and it is an art form some people are frightened to do it and, and I can understand that, but it's not something they should be frightened of.
0: What do you think it is they're frightened? Because what Dad's talking about is he would go up to say he would he'd be in the park, he'd see a police officer, and he would go up and introduce him and say, hey, Hello, my name's Lloyd Rice, I'm from here, this is what I'm doing. We've probably talked to a lot of your colleagues. Would I like be yeah, would you like to have a quick chat about this? And that's how we would do it. This is like that that is the most ultimate cold canvassing possible you can do. And you and you mastered it. And you and and so what what is it do you think that scares people about doing that? Well I suppose that if they haven't done it
1: it's something that it's not familiar to them.
0: How did you learn how to do it?
1: Well I just decided that you know the only way I was going to get to know that person was to to introduce myself to that person.
0: So you always now because I've noticed you do this too you'll always introduce yourself to strangers you're very good at meeting people and you're natural well no no you've learned how to network effectively because you've liked people for so long. Yeah I enjoy people. Yeah you enjoy people. So uh that that this craft you've developed over a number of years this is where you cut your teeth on being able to network, talk to people, sell face to face, talk on the phone, um, do business, manage a practice, manage staff. this is not an overnight thing is it like it took it took what would you say perhaps a decade, ten years to be an overnight success
1: I'd say that um, it does take you know. A lot of practice and it does take um, time but the more often you do it the less that time becomes and the better at it you become and I still believe that today in the world of today whilst there's technology that we have like at our fingertips with these smartphones and the internet and all the things that go with technology of today I still think that it's still relevant to um, do face-to-face meetings Face-to-face presentations, uh, face-to-face Zoom calls—you mm. know—I think they're very powerful. You know, in the world of today, because people really—they will buy from you, or they will be guided by you if they like you, and if they trust you, and naturally, if the product that you're talking about is good. And yep. you know, you're not going to be out there talking about a product that's not good. You're not going to be out there trying to harm
0: anybody. You're there to try and help them. So you do need to have, first and foremost, you had a great product you believed in that uh, solves a problem. And you knew that if you spoke to enough people that they would see the benefit of having that product. Yeah. They would buy it, you'd get paid, they'd be better off, you'd be better off. Yeah. And that's the world of business. Yeah. And I think what happens, is, like you're right, if you don't have a good product, it doesn't work. Because no. like, you don't want to go and sell or find clients because you just know that it's not going to help people so I think that also probably helped you a lot to have a, a product that was effective for people and you believed in it yeah. so much that you just thought everyone needs to have this so I better go and talk to a lot of people yeah. so let's unpack this a little bit um, when you became successful oh, oh, did your, t- how did you end up because you know you said earlier in that quick fire question round we did at the start your favourite car is a Porsche so talk to us about when you bought your first sports car
1: I bought um, my first sports car when I was 27, when I became a millionaire for the first time. And um, that was a reward that I would promised myself that I would um, do once achieving that. And um, so I did, I bought a a red Porsche and uh, I enjoyed that motor car and it was nice and comfortable and it used to go fast and I'd get from place to place faster.
0: (laughs) So dad would obviously, he had a Porsche in his twenties. Yeah, he's in Tamworth. No one really has Porsches in those days. It's red, 944 Porsche. I remember it when I was about three or four driving from there to here. We, we drove from Tamworth to the Gold Coast, actually, once in it, I remember. Did we? Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah. so I think <laughs> so. you've got to reward yourself. So Dad's driving this Porsche, and he just said before he liked to get places faster. In those days, there weren't really points on licenses, so it was almost like you just had to pay the fine. I think wasn't yeah, well, it? Was much it? Much. So there's no driver's license points. So you can imagine how fast he wanted to get to Sydney to sell more insurance and, and make it, his life more efficient without mobile phones in the car. I think it might have had a, an old school mobile phone in the car years a couple of years later. But so, Dad, tell us in your port what <laughs> you obviously got a lot of speeding tickets.
1: I did. <laughs>
0: so tell us the story. I want to make sure this is on the podcast. This is a really funny story. Tell us the story of what happened when you were going to a conference once and you happened to be pulled over by a police officer. I believe you had people in the car with you or something, or maybe this happened twice. Tell us that story. I, I love it. Oh, yeah, that's a funny story. I, I was driving
1: to uh, Wollongong for a conference and um, we'd had a, a two-day conference in Sydney and then we were going to another conference, more of a regional conference in Wollongong. So um, a lot of us, you know, jumped in the cars to drive from Sydney to Wollongong on a particular day and... I was charging down the road, and a police officer pulled me up, and I put, he pulled me over and I got out of the car, and he said, you, you know, you were speeding, and so he put his boot up on the bumper bar of the car and was riding the ticket. And whilst he was riding the ticket, I was thinking, well, this is not good. So when he completed it, I thanked him and shook his hand, and I said, what I do for a living, I'm in the insurance business and I look after a lot of police throughout New South Wales and uh, I mentioned a few chief superintendents and people who were um, uh, people that had given me the authority to talk to police officers and I said so you know it's probably timely that you did pull me up because maybe I wouldn't have met you and I started talking to him about the benefits of the insurance policy and the savings plan And Within uh, 20 minutes, I had the boot of my, my my boot up on his bumper bar, and I was signing him up in an insurance policy. <laughs> so I exchanged him for a speeding ticket for an insurance policy.
0: And I think in those days, an insurance policy commission rate was a lot higher than what it was to pay a ticket. So it might have been a very profitable thing to be pulled over so often, if you can talk to a police officer. Look at the. I, I think that's just uh, for the for you guys listening to the podcast. You got to listen to this. Like, it. Look at the courage. Look at the challenge. Look at the the fun. Of business that you can have on a business adventure and this can happen anywhere and you can do you can have fun in business if you want so dad saw it as a challenge he thought you know what if you're giving me a ticket I want to make sure you get a good policy here and help you and I think that's just funny one of the best stories because uh, you know you obviously had a character and a rogueness um, you know and an identity in the insurance industry as someone who was not just good at it and helping a lot of people but also someone who had fun while they're in business. Little fun things you did along the journey, whether you were going into places or you'd have, I remember someone told me that you were in an office in the airport once and all the air hostesses were all lined up to do insurance policies and you were using the office of the CEO of the airport, into BHP with coats on, into hospitals, just just real, you know, like, doesn't harm anyone, but it's just such fun, just interesting. Uh, like a little challenge to see if you, who you could talk to, almost, and who you could maybe influence.
1: Ansett Airlines, uh, we had offices, they, they gave us offices in the airport and there was 8,000 employees at Mascot in those days. And after talking to the CEO of Ansett, he offered to give uh, give us an, uh, an Ansett little um, vehicle to drive around the airport. And we, and we had full security clearance. We could drive across the tarmac at any time and into the workshop sheds and all the hangar sheds and all that sort of thing and talk to the flight attendants and people you know throughout the airport industry and um I guess that you know they were people that wanted their staff to um be spoken to and to take responsibility and to have an insurance policy and have a savings plan so they would assist us to do that and people were floored with the fact that they'd given us offices within the mascot airport uh, uh, airport itself and given us a vehicle in their own vehicles to run around in and talk to people. But it's only because we went and asked for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you had the ability to build rapport and trust with people, and they they wanted to help you. You wanted to help their people. So you're you're 28 probably 29. You've got a red Porsche. I think you also got a blue Mercedes Benz, if I remember rightly, and a million dollar house in Tamworth, and uh, got a great business in insurance. And so tell us what? How did how did we move? As I said earlier, we're in the Porsche coming up to the Gold Coast. How did we move from Tamworth to the Gold Coast city where we are now? We were sitting here doing this podcast. We're on the Gold Coast. We're in Service Paradise. We moved here in 1987. So how did you make that move and what happened after that with your insurance business? How big did it grow? Well, I wanted to put together a master
1: agency and um, engage consultants across that master agency. And National Mutual in those days, they weren't prepared to do that. They wanted to keep me doing what I was doing but I wanted to evolve and wanted to grow. So another company, um, Colonial Mutual, they were prepared to give me the opportunity to build a master agency. So I made the decision that um, I would move from National Mutual to Colonial Mutual, build a master agency, which was was called Tri-Global Australia. And um, I decided that it would be better to do it in a fast-growing state and I believe that Queensland was going to be that state in the future and I located my offices both in Gold Coast and Brisbane and um, put together 160 consultants over a period of a year and trained them and put them into the field and took them out and showed them what I'd done as an individual and built a very large agency base. So much so that in three years it wrote 18,000 policies with those 160 consultants and
0: um represented a large portion of the Colonial mutual business so you really built i think a master agency that you have 30,000 clients total oh, yeah. total 30,000 clients total in drug global no. and uh, I remember the the office in bundle was there and uh, i was probably 5 or 6 yeah, yeah. Um, moved here paradise waters bought a nice house bought a million dollar house here right, we did and uh, and this is in the late 80s and Built that managing agent. Now this business became the top in the top 400 largest companies in Queensland, in the state. It's is that right? 118th in the it state. Was, it was, was the 118th largest company in Queensland, which is the state, from a scratch start, zero dot start. And you were how old at that stage? 30. 31. 31. So dad's 31 here. So and now he's got four children. My brother and sister came along. Sophie and Cal came along after that. So four children. One of the biggest companies in the state. And you're in the obviously a lot of in the press a fair bit, in the local paper, um, doing well. And then the opportunity arose to sell the business. Is that right? It did. Yeah. And Colony Mutual were going to buy it.
1: And um, what was the proposal? The proposal would be that they would buy forty percent of the business
0: for a sum of twenty-two million. Um, twenty-two million. So does just. <laughs> so twenty-two million in ni- in nineteen ninety-one. 1992, so they'd offered to buy 40% for 22 million, and you were 31. Yeah. So it's probably equivalent these days to what would you say, 50 million? Yeah. Probably. Probably 50 million, right? So at 31, so so so, once they proposed that, what were you excited about that? Well,
1: I was on the basis that they would then um, um, be a partner in that that insurance business, and three years later. The balance of the 60%, they would take over the balance for another determined sum, equivalent to what the first sum was. Which you know, at that point in time, um, I I was had an appetite to do that, and uh, I wanted to do that. But they had other ideas. Um, The person who architected that model, he was promoted to general manager of the UK, and when he uh, left Australia um another person replaced him and that person made a decision that they would decimate rather rather than buy into the practice that they would terminate it with seven days notice a large enterprise like that and breach a contract which they did breach the contract and um it decimated the business
0: pretty smartly as you'd imagine so dad got offered 22 million for 40 percent they had a they organized a meeting he and his two uh two friends who who he brought into the business they sat there thinking they were going to sign contracts and secure their 22 million 40 percent and instead got a termination so they wrongfully terminated the contract and decimated the business within seven days so he just i want everyone to understand this 31 years of 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 building business out in the field sacrificing time with family lots of work thought process like 160 consultants lots of employees 118th biggest company in Queensland and boom just like that the carpet was pulled out and what did you think at that point I mean stupid question but
1: (laughs) well um we were naturally shocked and um to say the least I made a decision that they were you know in breach of contract and they'd done the wrong thing and as an institution that was just not appropriate so I engaged the lawyers and we kicked the federal, kicked the doors open to the federal court pretty smartly and um, we took them to task. And um, that was a year that my lawyers at the time um, made a comment at one stage that I had the fastest law degree in Australia because I was there like their article clerk because there were some thousands and thousands of documents but I knew the business inside out and, and so on. So I would uh, help them craft the case against Colonial Mutual for the termination. And we did that through the federal court. It cost a lot of money to do that. And it took, um, you know, a lot of resources to finally get a judgment against them for wrongful doing. And uh, the day I walked out of the federal court, you know, I was thinking that uh, I've had a big win here because I've caught a, a major financial institution that they've breached contract, section 82 and 87 of the Trade Practices Act. And that, therefore,
0: I would be, you know, in a strong position after winning that judgment. So that's a David and Goliath story because it's the largest insurance company, third largest insurance company in Australia in the country, and Dad is a small business owner, right? And 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 fighting them in the federal court and wins, wins the case. So I remember I was at school when this was all going. It was in the papers, wasn't it? Yeah, it was right. in the papers. Yeah, a big David yeah. and Goliath story. Yeah. And you ended up winning the case. So you thought, you know what, we're going to get our rightful b- payment for our business that we've sold, yeah. uh, that was wrongfully terminated. You won the case. Yeah. It was now actually been won. And then what happened? Well, I didn't understand the court system
1: at that stage because you know, I'd never been involved in, in that sort of situation before. And you know the law of contract and the commercial law of contract is, a, is, is something to behold. And what I didn't understand was then I then had to run another case to prove those damages and that was going to take a lot of resources, a lot of money and a lot of time to run a, a, a case against them for damages. And I didn't have, have the funds and I didn't have the resources, nor did I have at that point in time enough money to employ any lawyers. So I ran ran a, uh, a damages case against them for two weeks in the court on my own and um, it, it really it got to a point in time that I just couldn't i needed need a forensic accounting and all sorts of things need to, to go with it to be able to prove to the judge on the day in the federal court that they had not only breached the contract, which they'd been found guilty of, but then to prove up those damages is a whole different uh, arena
0: again. So you've got to remember, so here's Dad. He doesn't have a degree in law, doesn't come from a legal background, and he's talking toe-to-toe with QCs, the, the greatest trained lawyers in the country... And and winning, <laughs> but and but doesn't have enough resources to continue the case, and sadly the whole thing had to be abandoned. abandoned. And um, I think I was in grade four at this point, and uh, and uh, and it was a sad, it, it ob- wrong, sad, unfair, uh, and brutal in terms of the financial fallout of that for the business all the employees families our family uh and it was not not it shouldn't have happened that way but that's the way that the cookie crumbled and what at that point what happened how did you because you know at this point dad i'm one of four kids you've now got a business that's been stolen effectively gone decimated used all the resources to fund the case that is now not winnable due to resource limits and all the things you have to do in, in the case law in Australia. So I dare say you're bitter, you're pissed off, you're disappointed, gutted, like, I mean, all these words, right? So what, how did, what, did you, what happened after that? How did you recover? What's the story? How did you rise from this massive, massive fall that very few people ever go through? Uh, two, two guys I
1: know, I'd got to know living on the Gold Coast, um, One fellow was called Dennis Freeman, another guy was called David Bartlett. Dennis Freeman sat me down at a coffee shop and showed me how property negative gearing worked, which I didn't have any insight into at that stage. And with that, I walked away thinking about the property business and how I could adapt my skills from the insurance and superannuation business across to the property business in a similar fashion by using the concept of negative gearing. And with that, uh, I spoke to a good friend of mine who's still a friend of mine, uh, David Bartlett, who David had a very successful property business. So uh, I arranged to have meetings with David and we then agreed to put together a joint venture uh, property practice, which started out as a joint venture and um, and it went along for a couple of years and that sort of uh, taught me the property industry
0: so you've gone from insurance and you've now pivoted. So restarting again, did you ever feel like, well, I'll just go get a job? Or uh, like, how did you piece it together that you thought, you know what, I'm going to use my, I'm going to stay in sales. I'm going to stay in my own, in entrepreneurship. I didn't, you don't want a security. You wanted, you wanted to play it bigger. Yeah. So you never thought to, for a second to just go get a job and just do that? Once, it, once you've been self-employed for a
1: number of years, you know, it, it, it's something that in your DNA that remains there forever. And that is that you never really want to be, again, an employee.
0: Yeah. You're, never, you're psychologically unemployable, really. After yeah, yeah. doing what you did, you just could not possibly I wouldn't not done, steer your own ship. Well, I wouldn't have done the employer real you know, justice, I suppose, because I, w- I wouldn't have had my heart and soul into it. Yeah, oh, there you go. So, you, so you've gone into property. Now, you didn't have any experience in property, but you had experience in sales and marketing. And you applied those skills that you've developed over years and years of rep- repetition, and you applied them to a different product, yeah. which is property. Yeah. And you started out with David, who taught you some things. Pa- perhaps maybe a bit of mentorship from him to show you a different way. Yeah, I did. And then you applied your uh, skills that were still with you. Because I think one of your friends, um, uh, David, I uh, can't think of his name,